0: All right, a tool doesn't have to be pretty to get the job done. It mainly depends on who's using it as to how useful it will be, and that's the same with our lives. We are turning to the life of Jephthah. I've entitled our study tonight, From Outcast to Hero. From Outcast to Hero, and his story. Um, actually begins in Judges chapter 10 and goes all the way to the middle of Judges chapter 12. And of course, we've gotten used to these flyovers. Uh, we're not going to read every verse related to Jephthah, but we are going to try to get a real good read on How his life went, and how God used him. First, we want to start with what's called, I'm going to call it the prologue. We need to set up what's the situation before Jephthah comes on the scene. We find that in Judges chapter 10, verses 10 through 18. Here's what had happened. Israel, as happens with the Judges cycle, Israel had turned away from the Lord and had started becoming idolaters once again. And of course, when you turn away from the Lord and you start worshiping idols, it doesn't go so well. The problem with sin is not just that it's wrong, it's just that it's harmful. It's going to bring hard things into your life. And so that's exactly what happened in their lives. And so they cry out to the Lord, and this time the Lord doesn't send them deliverance right away. In fact, God says, look, I've sent you deliverance before, yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Like, you've made your bed, you're going to lie in it. You've decided you're going to serve idols. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. So God does this kind of delay. It's not as soon as they cry out, they get saved. He makes them squirm a little bit first. And, you know, God does that with us sometimes, doesn't he? He doesn't bring relief right away as we deal with the consequences of our sin. And the people of Israel, in verse 15, they said to the Lord, they just keep crying out to him, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. See, God is not just a God of justice. He's a God of compassion. And he doesn't like to see people suffer, especially when they've been repentant. Well, the Ammonites were called to arms. They're descendants of Ammon, um, actually a son of Lot by one of his daughters. So, it goes way back. It's a really sad story, a tragic story. Uh, But they were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead And the people of Israel came together, they encamped at Mizpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the distress of the times called for a man of God who was also a man of action, but when they looked around, they couldn't find anybody to meet the need. And it turns out that Jephthah became that man. Jephthah from outcast to hero. Let me give you just an overview of what we're going to look at tonight. First off, we are going to see that Jephthah was a man of rejection. The reason he wasn't living in Gilead at the time is because he had been booted out. And then he becomes a man of deliverance. He comes in and he wins this battle against the the Ammonites. He proves himself to be um, a man of the word He knows the Scripture. He's uh, able to put things into words and to engage in interaction with others. Um, The big thing that comes out is despite the fact that he's lived away from his people, uh, he knows God. He knows the Scripture. He's got a good handle on that, maybe better than the people that were living in the land. He's a man of action. He wins the battle. And yet, in the middle of that action, in the middle of that victory, We learn he's also a man of tragedy. There's a vow that he makes. It's a rash vow uh, that was very sad for him and and for his daughter. And then, finally, we see him as a man of justice. So, that's the flyover, and we're going to look at Jephthah under these headings. First, he was a man of rejection. Let's read about it beginning in in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but… He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So Jephthah is not the son of the mother of the rest of his brothers. There is some other woman that wasn't his dad's wife. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are a son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. The treatment of Jephthah was clearly wrong because he was made to suffer for his father's sins. But his brother's rejection of him does not mean that his life will amount to nothing. It will become clear that God is with him and that he is the very man that his people need in the time of their distress, including his own brothers. And so, right from the get go, we really, when we're looking at the life of Jeff, though, we, we really need to learn this lesson because we live in a victim culture. And we need to make sure that we do not let mistreatment or matters beyond our control keep us prisoner or become our excuse for failing to serve God. Do not think that you're doomed. Sometimes I hear people talk about, you know, bad things they've experienced growing up or, or things that they've gone through even after they've grown up, um, because there's lots of bad things you can go through. And and they act as if because these bad things happen to them and because they still carry the scars of those, they, they have no ability now to serve God. And and now there's an excuse for them um, not to have any hope that, that God will use them again. They're just stuck forever. Let, let me encourage you, because as I, as I think about our congregation, I look into your faces. There are any number of you that are dealing with difficult situations. Some of those situations are of your own making. Some of them, though, are not of your own making. Do not let that become more powerful than it should be. Do not grant extra power to those who have mistreated you, or to difficult circumstances, and say, "Oh no, I can't be used." It would be like it would be like saying that because this has got all kinds of stains on it and paint splatters, that it's not useful anymore. The re- the reality is that it's still very useful, um, provided there's there's something for the thing to be used for, and that is true of us. God, not your circumstance, is the master of your life. Don't, don't give in to the victim culture that we're part of. Um, there's just a lot that we miss out on in life as long as we, we're always blaming somebody else or saying that there's no hope for me. The reality is that if you're in Christ, that He knows everything about your life, He knows everything about what you have suffered. He knows what you're dealing with now. And and there there are ways you can serve God that that even your suffering becomes part of. And lean into that and trust the Lord. Jephthah was a man of rejection, but Jephthah was the man God chose to use. For we see that he's also a man of deliverance. In verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel... And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Well, (laughs) Jephthah actually reacted exactly the way God reacted when they first cried out to him. Jephthah said, wait a minute. Didn't you hate me and you drove me out of my father's house? And now you're going to come to me now that you're in distress? I mean, he's actually... There's an exact parallel to the way God first answered Israel. It says, oh, well, let your own idols, you know, save you. Why are you coming to me? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah goes back, went with the elders of Gilead, and they did exactly that. They met him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord at Mizpah. What's really interesting about Jephthah's interaction with these folk is how the Lord keeps, you know, showing up. He keeps referring to the Lord, and uh, the Lord's going to be a witness between them and um, he spoke all these words before the Lord. Jephthah is a Yahweh-conscious kind of man, even though he's, he's lived in a rough environment, he's been mistreated, now being brought back. We find out that you know, more about his sensitivity to the Lord in Judges 11, 12 to 28, he's a man of the word. He tries in verses 12 and 13, an effort at diplomacy. He doesn't suddenly go to war against the Ammonites, he tries to work it out with them first. He sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites. and says, what do you have against me that you come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the J- Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Well, as politicians often do, this uh, king of the Ammonites is lying. It's not at all what happened in history, and Jephthah's going to set that straight. Jephthah makes an argument from history and from theology, and it becomes very clear as you read this passage, and I'm sorry for our our time limitations tonight, we can't read everything that's here, but Jephthah's an articulate man. He's well acquainted with the scriptural record of the history of the region and of Yahweh's actions on Israel's behalf. And so he starts off with, let's just get the facts straight to begin with, okay? It may surprise us that someone kicked out of his family and living out in the wilderness with a bunch of roughnecks would be so knowledgeable and so articulate. Yahweh figures prominently into his explanation of the situation. So he sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he goes back through the history. The fact is they didn't take this land from the Ammonites. Um, They actually took it um, from the Amorites, totally different people and they did so because Sihon, king of the Amorites, came against them. And they they didn't provoke the battle. Uh, They actually asked to pass through peaceably. Sihon came against them, and God used that to give the lands that Sihon, king of the Amorites, possessed to give that uh, to Israel. And so Israel took possession of it. Um, God helped them dispossess the Amorites and And Jephthah makes the argument, look, if God has given us this land, if your idol Chemosh gave you your land, would you give it back? God gave us this land. This is ours. It belongs to us. So let me sum up the argument because this is the longest section here that we're going to look at tonight. Here's the argument he made. First off, Israel took this land from the Amorites, not the Ammonites, when King Sion came against them unprovoked. So, this never was your land. So, no, we're not giving it back to you. Second, Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave us the victory and with it the land, should we give away what God has given us. And then third, it's been 300 years since this happened. Neither the Moabites nor the Ammonites that he's about to fight uh, ever made a claim to this land before over those 300 years. Why now? I mean, think about it. It'd be like, I mean, 300 years ago, whoever had the land 300 years ago saying, hey, it's ours now. And God had given him the land. He says, no, it's not going to happen. So, what's interesting is you look at all of this, you see reference to the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, multiple times. Then finally, in verse 27, the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel. And the people of Ammon. So, Jephthah is leaning into the, the sovereignty of God and the rule of God over what has happened in the region historically before he even goes to war. Well, he's not just a man of the Word, uh, familiar with the Scripture, familiar with history, uh, articulate and able to make an argument, but he is a man of action. It kind of reminds us of what David will be a man of the word as well as a man of action. And we read in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mispah of Gilead. And from Mispah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities, as far as Abel, Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So the key to Jephthah's military success was not just his own skill in battle. And he was a mighty warrior. We learned that right from the beginning, but it was that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That, along with his faith and the truthfulness of the Scriptures, his reliance on the Lord, is why I think he appears among the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. He's mentioned there, along with Gideon and others. So he's a man of action. But as we read through that, there should have been something that that caught your eye and actually now is kind of almost sticking in your throat. His rash vow before the battle makes us really nervous. It's going to become more than just the fear growing in the pit of our stomachs. It's going to become a gut kick. And we find that number five, he is a man of tragedy. God gives him the victory. He makes this vow, this reckless vow, right before he goes into battle, and God gives him the victory. But then after the battle... We read verse 34, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, for you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And She asked permission to uh, mourn over her fact that she would never be married for two months along with her friends. And then she said, Then you can do with me what you have vowed to do. And in the two months, We're told that her father did what he had vowed and that every year that the daughters of Israel would go and lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. And you say, wait a minute. Like, this is a hero of the faith? Like, what's going on here? Like, human sacrifice are, I mean... How can can this be one of the men that God uses? Jephthah believed that he had to keep his vow to God no matter what it cost him. And most interpreters believe that he actually offered his daughter as a burnt offering in the same way that it's described. Some argue that, that because human beings... And Jephthah would know this. He clearly knows the scripture. Human beings are not to be offered in sacrifice uh, as a burnt offering, that instead they're devoted to the Lord for lifelong service. They make the argument for that despite the language that's used. I'm reminded of God's test of Abraham, by the way, because he was, remember, Isaac was the son of promise, and he figured that he could God could raise Isaac from the dead. So it's not like this kind, something similar to this hasn't happened before, but this time there is no ram in the thicket. And this time he goes through with his vow. What's stunning to us is his daughter's attitude. Did you pick up on that? She clearly has great faith in the Lord and great respect for her father despite this terribly reckless vow made right before a great God-given victory. I mean, even, even if this was devoting his daughter to lifelong service, it still was a reckless vow for him to make and something that obviously changed the trajectory of his life. So, well, what are we to make of this? Now, I, you, know, you can read the commentaries till so you're blue in the face and you'll still leave with your stomach churning. That's exactly what should be happening. This feels really wrong because it is really wrong. It's this mix of a man trying to maintain his integrity and at the same time having done something really rash and really harmful. And it teaches us this truth. God's servants are deeply flawed humans even in the middle of their god-given victories so this is not like gideon where you know gideon you know he wins these victories trusting in god and then later his success ends up being a problem this is a problem that is right in the middle of the victory we we are naturally works righteousness people and, and we want our heroes to wear white hats and black hats, and we don't, we don't want any flaws with our heroes. And the problem is that there's only one hero like that, that every other servant of God is going to be flawed in one way or another, and some of them are deeply flawed. This is a poignant reminder that ultimately we have only one hope, God himself not the flawed persons he chooses to use. How many people, their excuse for leaving the faith are the flawed people they encounter in the faith? If you're paying attention to your Bible, that's not a valid argument. The Bible will tell you every person you know is flawed, is sinful, and sometimes will disappoint you in ways that you... You just didn't expect it of that person. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God can't use them. Jephthah made the rash vow before the victory. And it doesn't mean that you throw out the God of these servants of the Lord. What it means is you're reminded in a very painful way that God's servants are flawed people. Jephthah's tragic vow does not negate his faithfulness or his faith or his victories. It leaves us, however, with a deep, bittersweet longing for the perfect warrior king. And that's exactly what his life should do for us. That leads us to the final thing we learn about him. He is a man of justice. The story's not over with the death of his daughter or with the devotion of her to lifelong service. He's a man of justice. Once again, the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house with you with fire. You know, you're going like, these guys... I mean, they really get on my nerves, don't they? Yeah, we've seen them before with, with, uh, with Gideon. They showed up with Gideon. He was able to sweet-talk them and, and get them to, to back down. And in this case, because he had more battles to fight, in this case, uh, Jepha, he, he he argues, like, you know, what's your deal with me? And they won't back down. And so Jephthah, verse 4, gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So you've got this arrogant pride that's trying to swoop in, uh, that's making enemies out of people that should be friends, treating them as lower-class people, and, um, and Jephthah fights against that, as he should. And, of course, then you have this story about the different dialects, the different different accents that they had. And the men of Ephraim had difficulty saying Shibboleth. They could only say it Sibboleth, and that's how they were able to weed it out. They ended up um, killing 42,000 Ephraimites. But it was an act of justice against these men that wanted war for unjust cause. And Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So once again, the tribe of Ephraim engages in jealous, combative behavior. Gideon was able to dissuade them in his day and had to, given the war he was fighting that wasn't yet over. Jephthah had to take them on, and he rightly wins the battle. He judges Israel only six years, and then he dies. But God in his kindness sends Israel, other judges after him to maintain the blessings of peace. So what do we do with this story? I mean, Jephthah's story is full of hard things and blessings. He leaves us with a gut-churning mix of feelings. But it is clear that God used him at a strategic time in Israel's history. By the way, God still operates this way. You know, if we look at our, our own country and the things that go on, we, we want all this clean division. We want everything in nice, neat boxes. It, it never works that way. Jephthah was a man of rejection, but he was a man of deliverance, the man for the need. He was a man of the Word. He was a man of action, a man of tragedy, and a man of justice. And as I was working through this and looked at those looked at those characteristics of his life, what was striking about them to me is that the main features of Jetha's life remind me of the ultimate savior and judge, the Lord Jesus. He was despised and rejected of men. He brought deliverance. He's the incarnate Word, the mighty in the Scriptures. He was the Savior who got it done with mighty miracles and saving power. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Grief not caused by his own sins, but the sins of others. And he is the universal righteous judge who will set all things right. Jephthah died and his career was over, Jesus died, and he rose again, and his kingdom is forever. As you look at the Old Testament scriptures, the thing that keeps coming through as we see leaders from Jephthah to David to Solomon, we find ourselves longing for this perfect king and this perfect savior and this perfect judge. And that's exactly what these stories are designed to do, to make you long for King Jesus and have him be the perfect Savior of your life. His kingdom's forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, stories like this, in some ways we wish they weren't in the Bible, and in other ways we're really glad they are. Because as we read the account of Jetha's life and, and we see the flaws there and we see the difficulties and we see the mistreatment, we see this mix of circumstances. Lord, what we see is a mirror of our own times and our own lives. And Lord, what we realize is how badly we need Jesus. Lord, may our hearts be drawn to him May our hopes be fixed on him and no one and nothing less, for it's in his name we pray.